Hello and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. As always, the goals with this podcast are simple, to bring agronomic knowledge to producers and agronomists across Alberta through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. And today we are chatting with Dr. Sherry Stridehorse. Sherry has been on the podcast a few times with a few different topics, some agronomic and some project management. Today we are talking about a little bit of both, which is great. Uh, We are here to talk about the regional variety trials to which Sherry is the coordinator of. So we're going to get an idea of how the the trials are coordinated, how they function, um, how they're implemented, and and really what that means for producers uh, and agronomists in terms of making decisions on farms. So welcome to the podcast, Sherry. Thanks, Jeremy. And as always, it's a pleasure to be back here chatting uh, with one of my favorite topics of the regional variety trials. So maybe give us kind of a a 10,000 foot view of what are the regional variety trials um, you know, who's involved, what the locations look like, and you know, who's actually funding this? Who, who's, who's making this move forward? Absolutely. So I'll maybe outline the structure. So the Alberta Regional Variety Trial Testing Program for cereals and flax, it's coordinated by the acronym RVAC, which stands for the Alberta Regional Variety Advisory Committee. And this committee, there's over 85 people on my uh, committee list. They represent individuals from industry, academia, government, the crop commissions. And I want to highlight the critical role that Alberta wheat and barley play in this, in that they are the funding applicant and they uh, have hired me to do the trial coordination role. So um, it's this RVAC Alberta Wheat Alberta Barley Partnership. Now, what this group does is our ultimate goal is the publication of the Alberta Seed Guide, which comes to all rural mailboxes in January. And the data in that seed guide on the cereals and the flax comes from the research trials conducted by um, the, the RVTs. Now, in terms of locations, I have, you know, 27 different locations from the far north north up in the Peace region at Fort Vermilion, all the way down to southern Alberta at Lethbridge. Now, not every trial is grown at all of those locations, but that's how many different sites I have because it doesn't make sense to grow, for example, oats maybe in the far south of Alberta. Um, It's a more central Alberta crop. So we do geographically specify which crops are where to make sure it's relevant data. And then my field trial cooperators, uh, those are cooperators. I have 11 different institutions that I'm working with. These include applied research associations, colleges, the University of Alberta, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada at multiple sites, Inotech, and even private companies. So as you're seeing these numbers, you're probably imagining this isn't a cheap project, and that's absolutely right. The annual cost of running the cereal and flax RVT uh, program is approximately $490,000. So we're looking at just about half a million dollar program each year. And uh, about 52% of the costs are covered by RDAR or Results Driven Ag Research and WGRF or Western Grain Research Foundation with the balance, the approximately other 48% covered by seed companies paying entry fees, Alberta Seed Processors, Alberta British Columbia Seed Growers, Alberta Oak Growers Commission, and of course, there's those huge contributions from Alberta wheat and Alberta barley um, that are in-kind contributions. And I, I do really want to acknowledge 
RDAR and WGRF for their funding of about three quarters of a million dollars over the next three years. So I think that's the high level overview and now love to dig into to some of the details. So Jeremy, what are you interested in? So, so I mean, a lot of moving parts, a lot of people involved. I'm sure we could we could dig into um, some of those those concepts. But I think, you know, maybe hitting on the fact that, you know, this isn't a cheap program to run. It is it is not as inexpensive. It requires a lot of coordination between multiple bodies. Um, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned this coming back to the Alberta Seed Guide. You know, why why are these trials necessary to to you know fill that information? What why why do we have to have such a large breadth to make that work? I'd like to start out by, you know, first of all, highlighting that the regional variety trials are run according to scientifically proven protocols. They're analyzed using statistically appropriate tools. And at the end of the day, what we want is meaningful data so that farmers and industry can make appropriate variety decisions. Um, this means replicated high quality small plot trials with minimal variation within replicates and peer review of um of the data by those that group of 85 RVAC memberships so that the industry can make high quality decisions based on high quality data. And I think it goes down to if we look at the producer level, when you look at the January 2023 seed guide, you see there are 47 CWRS varieties, and that can be overwhelming. How does a producer pick the right variety for their farm while balancing all the different um, traits of a variety? And they need high quality information to do this. And I would say um, the Alberta Seed Guide is really that critical source of that scientific information. And then they take that and also add in the lens of the marketing information from seed companies, the firsthand experience from neighbors, uh, what local seed growers are thinking. And, you know, I if they were only to depend on the marketing information from seed companies, it's really confusing. And I'm, I'm not trying to criticize the seed companies. We are, are good friends, but, you know, their one poster can say, um, you know, the yield of variety X relative to car barrier, the yield of variety Y relative to view field and without that benchmark or knowing which trials and where they're located it can be really confusing for a grower to make a variety decision when they're trying to narrow down that group of 47 for what is right for their farm so the seed guide and this rvt data that populates it gives us that common benchmark to compare varieties so strong scientific data unbiased third party and creating that consistent comparison that producers can look to to help make those decisions and, and have it be a fundamental piece. That's what I'm getting from from that. Is that is that kind of a, a good way to summarize that? <clears throat> so you you mentioned um, you know some of the funding or some of the the help uh, financially comes from um, seed companies putting in some of their seed varieties. You know how do how how does a selection process varieties included in the RV RBT trials work? Because you know some varieties that are being used in Alberta maybe aren't found in that anymore. Um, so you know what's the selection process? How does that how does that look? So I guess um, there's check varieties and benchmark check varieties, and those varieties are made 
based on that RVAC committee. So first of all, the Czech variety is it's a, a very dominant variety. So for example, spring wheat, uh, the Czech variety is Brandon. It's in registration trials, which is a critical component that we'll talk about later. There's significant production. Um, farmers are well aware of this variety and they kind of have a, a mental image in their mind uh, of how that variety performs. Then we have benchmark varieties, and those are the most commonly grown varieties um, in a class based on crop insurance data. And this is, again, so that growers have that familiarity with um, what they're comparing with. But really, the bulk of the varieties are paid entries. So when a seed company has a new variety that has just been approved for registration through the Prairie Grain Development Committee, they come to me and say, I have this variety, I would like to pay the annual entry fee of $1,400 per variety per year and get it tested, for example, in your 14 sites for CWRS. And that um, they have to test it for three years. And after that mandatory three years of testing, a variety is considered to be fully tested and it will be published in the seed guide um, for as many years as that variety is relevant. So we do remove varieties from the seed guide when there is no longer certified seed production or when a distributor um, chooses to take it out of the guide. So that's kind of how we have what is in the trials and what is in the guide. Why why three years? You mentioned three years required before. Like, What is that requirement for? So to get a variety fully tested, um, so what we're trying to do is populate enough site years of data while still being mindful of costs and resources. So for CWRS wheat, if we have 14 sites times three years, that would give us 42 site years of data on a variety. Um, now, of course, we're not going to have all 42 of those site years produce usable data. We might have drought take out a site, hail take out a site, but it gives us enough data to really make good indications of how a variety is performing across the province of the of Alberta. Again, it seems to fall into that category or the mandate of, of making sure that the information, the data coming from this is is strong and producers can make good decisions based on what's in there. So, okay. Um, and I, I know you mentioned the Prairie Grain Development Committee, um, and I'm going to cross promote a little bit here because I know uh, Mark with, with Germination um, has been doing podcasts over the past, I think, month since the last PGDC event occurred. Um, if anyone is interested in learning more about how varieties become registered and the importance of the process of, of the Prairie Grain Development Committee, um, definitely go take a listen to that podcast um, or those multiple podcasts because I do believe he interviews not only you, but a few others that are involved. Um, and it's 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 rather enlightening to hear the different perspectives of, of how the value add of this process comes really down to the producer level in the end. So um, just want to do a little bit of cross promotion there. So, okay, so we have an idea of how the trials run who's involved, where the funding comes from, how the varieties are selected. Um, you know, I'm thinking about all these different locations and all these different classes, all these different crops that go into the regional variety trials. Um, agronomic management, where does that fall into decision-making? Are all the same uh, 
classes treated differently. I'd imagine the crops are treated differently or the locations treated differently. Um, how do we look at, at um, you know, is it, I guess I'm thinking advanced versus classic um, uh, agronomic management. Are we, are we applying fungicides? Um, what does that look like, Sherry? Yeah, and this, of course, is not an easy, quick answer, but we are conducting the small trot plot trials using the best agronomic practices and making them geographically relevant while still making sure that we don't limit production. And we also want to highlight genetic differences between varieties. So I'm going to kind of talk through the different uh, pieces of agronomy that we use. So for our fertilizer rates for our nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur rates, they're based on soil test recommendations for one 0.33 times the area average yield goal over the past four years based on AFC or sorry, AFSC's yield Alberta publication. Now I'll go through an example of that. Uh, our farm is in risk area 10. So I'm located northwest of Edmonton and the average CWRS yield over the past four years has been 55 bushels based on crop insurance. So I take that 55 bushels, multiply it by 1.33, and then the yield goal for fertility rates is set at 66.5 bushels per acre. So based on the soil test, you enter that 67 bushels per acre yield goal, and that's the fertility that's applied to the trial because we don't want fertility limiting. And now this is done, uh, again, separately for barley, um, for CWRS, for CPS, for oats, etc. Um, the next thing that we do is all wheat, barley, oat, and triticale seed is treated with a seed treatment, Taraxa F4, which was kindly donated by BASF. And we have lost trials due to wireworm damage in the past, and we want to, of course, mitigate that. And um, root rots, that's another concern. And we want to follow Fusarium head blight best management practices. So we are using, you know, um, a consistent seed treatment across all seed lots. The next thing related to seeding is that our seeding rates are of course adjusted to thousand kernel weight and germination of each seed lot and for uh, a target plant population. So what we're targeting for our um, CWRS, our CPSR special purpose CNHR is 31 plants per square foot. So 31 live plants per square foot. Our Durham is at 28 and our winter wheat is at 33. Those are our plant targets that we're reaching. For barley, it's 25 plants, oats, 28, and triticale, 29. So we are using um, high seeding rates because we don't want plant populations to be limited. And we are adjusting for 1,000 kernel weight and germ of each individual seed lot. Now, Jeremy, you asked about foliar fungicides. We do not use foliar fungicides in the trial. And I think that is a surprise to a lot of people because what we're trying to do is allow for the expression of genetic differences between varieties. So if a variety has an MR resistance to a disease versus a variety that's susceptible, we want that to show through in these trials. So um, no foliar fungicide is allowed on these trials. Similarly, insecticides are not used to control orange blossom wheat midge, as many of our varieties have orange blossom wheat midge resistance. Um, they have that SM1 gene, so we do not spray insecticides to control that insect. 
However, if there is grasshopper pressure that would equally affect all varieties, insecticide use in that scenario is allowed. So that's a, a really high level overview of the agronomic practices that are used. And of course, proper seeding depth, early seeding and, and things like that. So I guess the one thing I'm then confused on, Sherry, is um, the use of a, a seed treatment to mitigate disease impact, which is there situations where certain varieties may be more or less impacted by uh, a seed or soil borne disease? And then comparing that to applying a fungicide where some varieties may be more or less impacted? Um, or am I looking at that maybe not uh, correctly? So I, I think one of the things is that we ideally would like to have seed that is completely free of any seed borne disease so we can be comparing everything on a level playing field because the seed that's coming into my trials some of it is even coming from the northern u.s um, from manitoba from alberta and we want to make give everything that lay, level playing field so if a variety might have some loose smut on it but if it was grown in another area it wouldn't so that's where we level the playing field with this fungicide um uh, type of treatment and it is one of those best practices. Um, I know in some areas you can get seed coming in, some that has seed treatment and some that doesn't and that's a really dangerous game to play so um, this is kind of the, the compromise that the RBAC committee made is to equally treat all cereals with with this, uh, a seed treatment both for fungicide and the wireworm damage to save sites. No, that's, uh, it just was a little thing that was like, okay, well, we can control disease in this situation, but not, not foliarly, but the way you've. Yeah. And I think it's just where that seed is coming from to level that, that playing field. And particularly, um, we do allow up to 2% um, fusarium graminarum on seed lots, and we do want to use best management practices there so we are not introducing disease into different areas. And this is seen as one of those ways to be responsible. Now, I can't help but think, um, and I think this because I've, I've seen this in some of the trials that I've done where... Um, you know, you're maybe comparing two varieties in field conditions under a, a, a producer-specific management that includes fungicide. Um, and then the results of that comparison in a field situation with the use of fungicide kind of contrasts what maybe you might see in the Alberta Seed Guide because uh, fungicide isn't used in the RVT trials. Um, so I'd imagine that's something that producers very much need to, to consider when selecting varieties is how much do the RVT trial practices, agronomic management decisions, um, how much do they relate the way you typically manage your crop in your farm, on your fields? Yeah, and there is that variance. And, you know, um, my ultimate dream would to be to have these regional variety trials conducted with and without fungicide. But when we looked at the program is about half a million dollars to run without, and you can almost double that cost and there simply aren't the resources. And I would love to do that. And, you know, Ontario kind of has a, a bit of a path down that um, to look at varieties with and without fungicide. 
but the reality is we have financial resource constraints that prevent us from doing that. And maybe that's, uh, I'll cross promote for you, Jeremy. Um, you know, that's the next place where producers might want to try a plot to farm trial where it's varieties with and without fungicide on, on a field scale trial. Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, 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 you can't be everything um, because obviously the the logistical constraints, but it's just it's something that producers and agronomists need to consider and, and keep in mind when they are looking at at some of that information in the seed guide, which brings me to my next question. You know, there's a lot of data that's collected through these trials at all of these locations. Um, you know, looking through all the Alberta seed guide, you can you can see which data is collected, but maybe give us a breakdown of, of what's collected, um, how it's collected, and and really what that means for what producers and agronomists are seeing in that seed guide. Sure. I'm going to start with height data and maybe not like the most exciting, but we measure for main stem heads or the height of the main stems after early dough. And when you look at the seed guide and, you know, um, I'm looking at the barley table and I've got a variety that's 103 centimeters all the way down to ones that are, you know, 69 centimeters or 65 centimeters. So that tells me a lot, the height about how a variety, how much straw it's going to produce, um, but also its lodging potential, you know, and that's important data when selecting a variety, because one of the things we're going to get into is trade-offs between traits and how important are different traits on each individual farm. So the next piece of variety data that we collect is maturity data, and this is collected in the plots um, by groups that want to because it is a, a very big extra step. And what they do is they go in and they cut 15 main stem heads from the inner plot rows when they're between 30 and 40% seed moisture content. They weigh them wet, they weigh them dry. There's a published dry down rate calculator and that allows us to determine and calculate the number of days from seeding to maturity when the crop is considered to be um, physiologically mature. Now, maturity ratings are reported based on average differences in days. So um, the Czech variety, for example, of barley, Copeland is listed as 98 days, uh, but we might have a variety that is plus two, um, minus four days, and those are the differences. Um, it's that average difference in days, and I want to emphasize these values are relative. So on under hot, dry conditions, you know, everything is going to mature faster. Um, just as on the flip side, if we have cool, wet conditions, those days to maturity are going to expand. The other thing to realize is that a variety might take um, 98 days to mature in Lethbridge, but it's going to take 103 days to mature in Edmonton. So these are relative differences. And, you know, the maturity data is really important for growers who have a shorter growing season and have been um, hit with downgrading due to frost damage, for example, or if they have to seed a field later than what they would like in the spring, again, that maturity rating becomes very important. Uh, one of my personal favorite categories of data is the lodging data. This is collected at all sites where we do have differential lodging, and it is measured on a one to nine scale with one being upright and nine being flat. And then I take and translate that data into good, very good, fair type of ratings. And, you know, this information has different importance in different environments. So if you are in a low yielding environment where your yield potential for CWRS 
is consistently 30, 40 bushels, then this is not going to be critical data for you to um, consider. If you have been growing Brandon and that good rating on Brandon for standability is what you need and you haven't had problems, that is all you need. However, if you're in an irrigated part of the province or if you're on thick black soils where you're pulling off 90, 100 bushels, this lodging column is really critical data and you're going to be wanting to, um, you know, pick those variety with, with the VG lodging ratings. And um, just I want everyone to realize that the different categories of data have different importance for consideration based on what challenges you're facing in your growing area. Another one that, you know, is very geographically specific is the ratings on the resistance to pre-harvest sprouting. Now, this data is collected on ratings conducted at AAFC in Swift Current. And they do provide that indirect indication of a falling number. So if you have a poor rating for your sprouting, it's more likely to sprout under cool, wet conditions prior to harvest versus if you have a variety that has a VG rating. And, you know, if you have that reduction in falling number, that is an indication that the germination process has started, even though it might not be visible. And the other caution is that if you've got a long, wet harvest, all varieties, regardless of this sprouting rating, are susceptible to sprouting and reductions in falling number. Another piece of data we report on is the thousand kernel weight. And we measure this on all individual plots. And it gives an indication if you've got a large versus a small seeded variety. But I really want to stress, this is not the value you should use when calculating your seeding rates. You need to base your seeding rate calculations on the actual seed lot that you intend to plant. I've just been getting, you know, thousand kernel weights in from different varieties grown in different environments. And, you know, a variety, uh, can range from a 26,000 kernel weight up to uh, a 40. So those are huge differences and you must base your seeding rate calculations on the actual seed lot you intend to plant. Um, we measure protein. Um, that is done by AAFC's breeding program technical staff or Lori Oatway at the Olds College Field Crop Development Center using an IR analysis. And, you know, there I want to stress that inverse relationship between yield and protein. So if you're a grower who has been struggling with um achieving minimal protein levels and you're getting discounts, you want to really look carefully at that protein column of data. And if there's, you know, a variety that is minus 0.5 or uh, minus 0.7, you might want to stay away from that and select something that has a little bit of a, a better protein to yield uh, relationship. And the last piece of information I want to kind of touch upon is the disease resistance that is reported in the seed guide. Now, our breeding programs have really made significant progress in developing varieties with improved genetic resistance to disease. Now, the disease data reported in here, it's sometimes a surprise to people that this does not come from the field trials conducted in Alberta. It is based on registration data, which is peer reviewed and approved by pathology experts. And again, at the PGDC or the Prairie Grain Development Committee and priority one diseases are reporting on reported on. I think the most critical one, um, you know, is really this fusarium headlight rating. Now, um, fusarium headlight light uh, fusarium graminarum is an increasing problem in Alberta and you know different crop types are more susceptible so for example durham is very susceptible um, to 
fusarium, whereas oat is less susceptible. And, you know, if you are looking for a variety, I think we all want to measure fusarium headlight better. If you have been consistently growing, I'm just going to, you know, pick on CDC Go, which is an older variety, and it has a moderate susceptibility to fusarium headlight. There's a lot of MR or even uh, intermediate resistant varieties where you can improve that and reduce that production risk and that downgrading risk by selecting a, a better variety with improved fusarium resistance. And, you know, one thing that maybe is saddening is that due to capacity issues um, within our entire research um, continuum, is that there is no longer resistance ratings to leaf spot diseases in wheat. And, you know, it's kind of the reality of, again, we have to work with the resources that we have, but um, really important to consider that disease resistance ratings data when we're selecting a variety. Um, you know, this is the last point there really hit on something that I think hits home often enough with the producers that I, I chat with of, you know, they could take a look on the barley side and see, okay, I know that I have more scald issues. Um, you know, I've, I've been able to identify that. And I know identifying some of these diseases, uh, you know, takes an expert eye sometimes, but, you know, they can make those selections. They're they can add that into their decision-making of which variety I'm, I'm taking in. But wheat, as you mentioned, we don't have the capacity to do that. Knowing that, Sherry, is there any type of guidance that you could give to producers to maybe mitigate, you know, apart from apart from good management practices like rotation and, and good fertility management, um, can they still look at that Alberta seed guide in any way or, or the variety they're selecting and mitigate foliar disease impacts on their wheat? You know, I think that's a tough one on wheat, given the information. And I, I do want to emphasize there is stripe rust data, so um, different than the leaf spots. So there is information on stripe rust resistance. But at the end of the day, when we think that um, these varieties are tested without uh, fungicide, if a variety has a higher yield under no fungicide conditions, it will generally have a higher um, or improved disease leaf spot resistance. And it's not a direct correlation, but if you've got, um, I'm going to pick on AC Foremost, an old wheat variety that, you know, in my area was grand, but that thing without a fungicide gets really sick and therefore its uh, yield performance is quite poor. So, so again, let's tie back to remembering how these trials were conducted without fungicide and a lower yield could reflect, you know, a variety possibly having a poorer disease package. I, I guess I'm wondering, knowing that um, the varieties that come into the market, um, the more recent ones, um, they should be at least as good or better than what is already available in most categories. Could a producer or an agronomist assume better foliar disease with new varieties? Or is that is that a high risk assumption to be making? Ooh, um, you know, maybe there is a chance, but I I don't want to quite step that far because you might have a um a variety, you know, that has wheat midge resistance and therefore when it goes through the registration test, its higher yield is attributed to that. So we can't really pinpoint higher yields 
directly to reduce leaf spot diseases. So um, a tough question there, Jeremy, and um, it is a balancing act given the resources we have. No, it's just, it's it's something that's kind of been sitting in my head. So I, I it's, it's good to know that, that we can't make that assumption and make that leap. Um, so, you know, all those other good management practices of rotation and good fertility and, and, you know, if you are seeing disease scouting and, and making that application if necessary, um, and even leaving check strips, if you're trying a new variety with a foliar fungicide can give you an indication of what your potential risk could be in high disease situations. So I think there's ways that producers can mit mitigate that impact, but um, not as close as, as being able to select a variety with those foliar disease packages. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I, I kind of wanted to jump back to is you mentioned lodging is, and yield is um, information that's collected. And I'm just curious if there's a variety that has, um, you know, it's very susceptible to lodging um, and maybe that's impacting the yield potential that they're able to pull off or even the harvestability of that variety. Um, is that impacting things on that Alberta seed guide? Are we seeing that in any way? Because um, I imagine as, as lodging increases, we're going to have an impact on yield, but potential harvestability and quality as well. So um, how is that managed? You know, that's not really a, a comparison I have done, the correlation between the standability and the and the overall yield. And, you know, um, absolutely when a variety lodges, that bending of the stem prevents the flow of water and nutrients up to feeding yield. So there's absolutely a correlation there. The more lodging you have, that can impact yield. But when I look at um, the registration data and the, the data that I get from the multiple sites throughout the province, sites that have severe lodging are still really, really rare. Um, my best site for lodging is Bow Island under irrigation. So if you're in that environment, then you better be making sure that you are selecting a variety with good standability and and coupling that with the with the yield, um, the overall yield potential, particularly in the high yield category, um, you know, I I don't think the connection is, is overly tight, especially when we kind of start looking back earlier in the registration process, where um, we might have thirty site years of data, and three of those might have you know, deferential lodging. So, so really lodging is a pretty, it, it isn't widespread. And in some areas it's top concern in others, it isn't, um, you know, one of those deciding factors. So I probably rambled on too much there for that one, Jeremy, but um, <laughs> a few thoughts. No, it, it's, it, it's, it, I guess, you know, it just comes down to the question of if I'm looking at this, can I ass assume that there's some impacts that lodging may have, but what I'm hearing is um, it's probably with, with all of the pooled data and all of the, the multiple years and multiple sites, um, even if it is, it's probably very minor for what you're seeing in that Alberta seed guide. That's, that's what I'm. Yeah. And I would absolutely. And I would say, you know, the traits that have a bigger impact on yield are maturity. There's a fairly consistent trend that the earlier maturing varieties have lower yields. And that makes sense because they're photosynthesizing for fewer days. And um, the other thing is protein. Those varieties um, with higher protein also tend to have um, lower yield. And we can think of that kind of a nitrogen um, 
being less concentrated in that kind of relationship. So I think that maturity and that protein relationship with the yield are much stronger than the yield lodging relationship. I mean, you can, when I open up the Alberta Seed Guide and can kind of move through, you can clearly see that relationship between um, maturity and yield and then, and then protein in there as well. And then you can start comparing between varieties, which then brings me to my next question, Sherry, is all of these have a check. All of these trials have standard checks for comparison. Um, and from my understanding, and, and please clarify this for me, is you know when we're making comparisons of varieties and decision-making, the strength between uh, the comparisons of, of, of maybe the new varieties versus the check or not comparing the variety that you're looking at to the check, but comparing it to another variety, um, there's less strength in that comparison than comparing directly back to the check. And I've probably made that a very confusing question, but I guess I'm asking, can you compare varieties in that table or do you have to compare back to the check? So I think the simple answer is always compare back to the check. And you should only ever compare a variety back to the check. One of um, the things that we added to the CD guide this year is the most recent year of testing column. So for example, I've got a variety like redberry that was grown in uh, most recently tested in 2017 versus um, Hawkley, which was most recently grown in 2022. So these two varieties were never actually grown in the same environments against each other. And that's why those head-to-head -head comparisons between individual varieties is um, a really very bad place to go. So you want to make sure that um, the variety you are comparing with is also always compared to the check. So that is the critical piece of information um, that I, I really want to caution everyone. It's so tempting to run down the overall yield column and go, oh, I'm going to pick the variety that is 105% of the check because that's got to be better than the variety that's 92% of the check. But that is not the way to look at this is always relative to the check. How do these check varieties work? How are they decided um, and and? I guess, you know, we've kind of hit on this, but what role do they play and um, are they always going to be the same? I think we've seen some changes in, in some recent years of the Czech variety. So um, how does that whole system work? So I'll, I'll kind of tell you our criteria when we select a new Czech variety. So first, is it a Czech in registration trials? So we need, um, we do include registration data in these tables. We talked about that for the sprouting resistance, the, the disease resistance. Now, so we need to have the check variety in registration trials. So right now, Brandon is the spring wheat check. As they are updating checks in the registration process, that is something I've been watching very carefully because as new checks are coming into the registration process, we're slowly moving them into the regional variety trials. We need to make sure there's significant pedigreed seed production of the varieties. Um, one of the issues I am having um, with our current Durham check being strong field is sourcing pedigreed seed because we need to compare with pure varieties. So there's a check that we're thinking of changing for that reason. 
Um, has the variety been adopted by commercial producers? Uh, Brandon is a perfect example that, you know, it has been the dominant CWRS variety, a lot of grower familiarity. So when you're comparing everything back to the Czech, growers have that mental image. And, you know, it needs to be relevant for several years. We don't want these, um, you know, these one horse uh, ponies to come in and and be um, not consistent. And these varieties need to perform consistently over many years. So as I mentioned, Brandon is the spring wheat check. Copeland is the barley check, but we're planning to move that to AAC Synergy. And we do need three years of overlapping data between Copeland and Synergy to make sure we can transition everything. Um, CS Camden is the oat check and CDC Bethune is a flax check. But for this year, we're moving to CDC glass. So um, you can see that these Czech varieties are critical and um, they're a, a significant part of um, work to make sure that we do have many factors aligning to get good comparisons to these Czech varieties. Oh, I know there's a, a specific subcommittee in BGDC dedicated to um, the decisions made around check varieties and how that may impact trials moving forward and how that impacts current data. Um, so it isn't a simple, easy, straightforward decision. I know there's a lot of uh, knowledgeable people that that sit at the table to help make those decisions again, to make sure that the information that's that ends up coming from those comparisons is important for uh for producers um <clears throat> so i kind of want to jump back maybe to um check varieties and you know mentioning that we can't make direct comparisons between varieties we need to make them between varieties and the check so if i'm a producer who's been growing maybe cdc go which the last year of testing was 2019, and I'm looking at, mm, let's say, Starbuck. Um, I can't compare those two directly. So how could I look at the data that's there to maybe determine whether uh, this move is is appropriate for me or 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 not appropriate for me? Um, <clears throat> how might how might a producer go about that, Sherry, to make sure that? They're looking at it correctly um, and they're making the right decisions. Hey, absolutely. So let's go through that example with Go versus Starbuck. And you know what? I'm going to do something that's probably make people uncomfortable, but I'm not going to focus on the yield data to, to start out with. I want to focus on um, the relative to maturity. Uh, so CDC Go is minus one day versus Brandon and Starbuck is um, the equivalent of Brandon. So, you know, I've got a slight earliness with CDC Go. So if growing season length is a constraint, then um, moving to Starbuck puts a little bit more risk in there. Next, I am going to look at that lodging column and both have a fair lodging rating. So I'm going to lose nothing by switching from CDC Go to Starbuck. Um, with sprouting resistance, you know, with go and moving to Starbuck, I moved from a poor to a fair. So I have that improvement, um, reduced risk of low falling numbers. I like that the um, the stripe rust, we moved from moderately susceptible to moderately resistant with Starbuck. And, you know, I think the really big one for me would be moving um, from moderately susceptible to moderately resistant for that FHB. So for, you know, disease reasons alone, 
for sprouting reasons, uh, Starbuck is a really a smart choice um, in my mind to move to that. And um, we got to remember that newer, newer varieties always need to be equal to or better than the, the previous varieties or the Czech varieties. So uh, another way to look at this is, you know, what was their most recent year of testing? And the more recent year varieties are, the more recently they are coming out of breeding programs uh, quite often. And, and that is an, an indication of moving forward and adopting that technology um, from the breeders. I want to um, cross promote again. There was a study done last year, I believe, that showed that for every dollar farmers invest in um, breeding, and that's through the crop commissions like Alberta wheat, it results in $33 back to the grower. So this, um, but you don't realize that extra $33 from your levy if you don't grow the new varieties. So really want to uh, stress the importance of looking at these new varieties and what is that right management practice for your farm? No, that's that's great, Chair. Did you did you want to go through how do you make the yield comparisons of these two varieties? I know we hit on on some of the other uh, agronomic characteristics, but um, how would you look? I think everyone goes there and I'm going to leave that for them to go there because I want to try and emphasize the importance of, you know, all these other traits that are sometimes forgotten about. And I have no worries that people, they'll be sure to look at the yield data on their own. <laughs> Actually, you know what, Jeremy, I'm going to take that back. I want to give one other um, mention here and just about yield in general. Um, when they're looking at the seed growers and agronomists will notice there's an overall yield category, a low yield category, and a high yield category. Now, this is important for where you're located in the province. Um, you'll see that the low yield category on the CWS table is um, for yield environments of 77 uh, bushels per acre, but that is a small plot yield and, you know, small plots yield better than field scale yield. So if we translate um, that 77, that is the equivalent of uh, a field scale yield of 58 bushels per acre. So if you are consistently having field yields of CWRS wheat under 58 bushels per acre, then you should be looking at yield performance in the low category. If you have yield performance better than 77 bushels in the small plot or the equivalent of 58, that's where you're going to want to assess performance in that high yield category. And, you know, um, I want to, um, so you can obviously see that there are some varieties like Viewfield that performs very well in the high yield category. So 106% of the check, whereas in the low yield category, it's only 99. So Viewfield is a variety suited to higher yielding environments. But a variety like Wheatland, you'll see that it's 104% overall in the low and in the high. So this variety is consistent across multiple growing environments. And what is great about that is that we don't know what mother nature is going to throw us. We don't know if she's going to give us a year of 40 bushels or 60, 70 bushels. So for that consistency of performance across multiple environments, uh, multiple growing conditions, something that like a wheatland where it's consistent across all yield categories is really um, an important thing to consider when you're selecting a variety uh in those conditions didn't uh didn't that variety come from um brandon heritage isn't that aren't they maybe i'm maybe i'm missing but I so viewfield and wheatland both came out of the aefc swift current breeding program um, 
and and very well adapted varieties and Brandon came out of the same breeding program as well as did Starbuck or just a couple of names that we've chatted about it, you know kind of maybe taking a little bit of a ch- tangent but uh, one topic I know that has grown in the past few years as a consideration that producers and agronomists need to think about is yield stability um, you know, we target those high yielding varieties and and they're great when the conditions are great. Um, but, you know, distributing that risk when conditions are poor, having a more yield stable variety, like what you've indicated maybe there with wheatland, where in high and low um, yielding regions, we we see similar similar yields. Would that, am I making that connection there? Is that something that pre- you're making me sad that I didn't say yield stability, actually, Jeremy. So um, you hit the the mark right on the head there. And, you know, when we look at um, another very popular variety in Alberta has been Stetler. And when you, we look across those yield categories, it's 97%, 98%, 97%. So again, that yield stability across multiple environments. Now, I'm probably going to throw myself under the bus here, but um, when I was an agronomist in Ontario, uh, the decision-making on corn um, typically fell into two categories of, of a workhorse, um, versus a racehorse. And, uh, you know, that workhorse was no matter what conditions that that corn variety was in, it would yield well, it wouldn't yield exceptionally, but it would yield well, where the racehorse when conditions were good, would outperform every other variety, every other, every other hybrid on that farm. And the producer would typically utilize a certain percentage of each of those categories depending on the variability of the field conditions and the environmental conditions that they grew in um, or that they produced in and and it's not something i see as often um, in western canada typically i see um, you know farms that produce one one variety that has performed well for them but i wonder whether as we're seeing these differences between a variety's ability to perform well in high high yielding conditions and and well across multiple yield conditions is there opportunity for producers to mitigate risk by utilizing multiple varieties through that process absolutely i think that's a tremendous example i think you know with the difference between corn and wheat is hybrid varieties need to be purchased new each year and there's um maybe that um People are spending the money each year on those new genetics, whereas in wheat, there might be a tendency to cut corners and use the same variety for multiple growing seasons. But I would absolutely love to see um, those workhorses on, you know, the fields where you don't expect as much and the racehorses on those fields where are your better soils, where you're going to push your fertility, where you're going to push your agronomy and and start linking variety decisions back to um, yield potential. Oh, that's good. Okay, let's let's get back. We got a few more things I want to bug you about. Um, you know, one of the questions that comes up often enough is, is local versus collective data, right? I would love to see how things, I know that there's an RVT trial 10 miles from my farm. Why can't I look at that information? That's the most relevant to me. Can you talk about the challenges of local versus that that pooled collective data and making decisions based on those those two different pieces? Absolutely. So um, I am not a fan of single site years of data. Um, you know, I personally find it interesting to look at performance of a variety at individual site years 
but compiled and that um, we do not publish single site years of data because they can be an unreliable indicator of performance. And what we do in the seed guide, uh, we have the mandate that we need to publish at least six site years of data collected over two years before there will be a value or else um, the there will be no value reported in just XX. And uh, in looking at the 2022 data, the most recent data we have, I want to highlight an example from um, Fort Kent and St. Paul. So this research was conducted at LARA, so the Lakeland Applied Research Association, and they had two geographically very close sites, one at Fort Kent, one at St. Paul. And the Fort Kent site, um, the variety AB Prime, a new barley variety, it was the highest yielding entry, and it had a yield 124% of the check. And then at St. Paul, the AB Prime was the sixth highest yielding variety at 107% of the check. So you're seeing a lot of variance between 124 and 107% of the check. And then when we go to the seed guide and we look that it has AB Prime has 29 site years of data and it is yielding 114% of the check. So, you know, there's a lot of variance there and um, we really want consistent trends. And I liken this to um, when a producer says, you know, this variety was just stellar and it was great in my neighbor's field and, and on and on and on. But I always ask the question, do you want to adopt a variety or an agronomic practice on your farm if it works great once in every one or two years out of 10? Or do you want that consistency of performance nine out of every 10 years or 10 out of every 10 years. And this goes back to that yield stability of a variety um, every year. So that's really, I am not an advocate of single site years of data looked at in isolation. We do allow um, groups to publish that data if it is um, statistically sound and high quality data, but I really caution growers about making decisions on individual site years of data. They need to um, really look at compiled data to, to see if they've got a winner nine out of every 10 years or 10 out of every 10 years versus um, those those one-offs. Yeah, I, again, coming back to that yield stability and, and understanding the consistency of a variety Um because I would imagine when you see a single site year and a variety performing 124% of check, it's, it's exciting. It's, it's, you want to see that and you want to adopt it, but um, you're right. If it, if it hits that one every five years, one every seven years, is it, is it a variety that's really worth adopting in your region? Um, or is there, is it better to pull from that, that pooled data um, to know that the information is, is sound over a variety of growing conditions over a variety of years. Um, <clears throat> so considering all of the Sherry, um, how the RVT trials are implemented, the data that's collected, and, and we kind of went through this a little bit in terms of uh, making a decision on, on adopting a new variety, but um, if you could kind of nutshell this down into, into a few um, maybe guidance um, thoughts on, on how producers and agronomists can utilize the information from this Alberta seed guide. Um, what kind of direction would you give? Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I can't tell 
growers that variety Y is best for everyone. And as you can see in what we've discussed, there are so many different factors um, that must be individually weighed. And each farm is different. Each field is different. You know, what is the growing season length? What is the risk of frost or wet weather at harvest? What is the likelihood of lodging? What is the history of growing low or high protein wheat? What is the fusarium risk on your farm? Um, you know, if I look at my own example on my farm, um, the top factors I need to consider are standability. So that lodging rating, the tendency for higher protein, um, improved fusarium head blight resistance. I am looking at the risk maps if they're calling for midge problems in my area. And um, always at the end of the day, after all those considerations, I'm looking at those yield categories um, to make sure that we pay the bills at the end of the day. And there is no perfect variety. Variety selection is a game of trade-offs. Um, each operation needs to rank production risks and then select the variety that best ticks the boxes for the production challenges they face. And the Alberta Seed Guide gives growers this information to scour through. And these regional variety trials are a critical part of the research innovation continuum. And that data is in the Seed Guide. And I'd really encourage people to, to look through that, walk through that, um, play out different scenarios in their head for their individual operations and think about yield stability and um, adopting new varieties and new technology to make use of those investments of your levy dollars because this technology uh, farmers contributed to and we want to see them profiting from it at the end of the day on their farms. Well, that's fantastic, Sherry. Um, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me about this. I um, this has been very informative for me as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad we were able to chat and, you know, I had a conversation with, um, Dr. Richard Cuthbert, who is a, a breeder out of, uh, Swift Current. Um, and we, we, you know, we focused on conversations around, um, wheat stem soft live breeding, but, you know, there's a lot of topics in there that relate to the, the challenges of, of developing a variety that really fits the needs of, of, producers in a variety of different categories and as you mentioned it is as much as it's a, a game of trade-offs when you're selecting a variety for your farm that challenge cascades or, or really starts too at the breeding process right um it is it is not it's it's very challenging to meet all of those characteristics that are required across the plethora of challenges that we have in Western Canada for producing wheat and barley. Um, so it's, it's important for producers to consider these things when making decisions and, and, you know, really circle those challenges, as you mentioned, that are, are the biggest factors on their farm and moving forward from there and making sure that's part of their decision. So um, I encourage you to listen to that other podcast. And um, hopefully this is this is uh, maybe helped with decision making in the future for producers and agronomists. So thank you, Sherry. Thank you, Jeremy. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Growing Point podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.